Hello and welcome to the Mage the Hero Described podcast. No intro song, no overproduced intro, no bullshit to wade through, just talking mage and related Matt Wagner stuff. Now, this is the show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins, and in this episode, I'll be reviewing and recapping issue number five of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. And before I get into this issue, a spoiler warning. If you haven't read this issue, or any of the past Mage comic series, I promise I'm going to spoil this issue, parts of past issues, from Hero Discovered and Hero Defined completely and totally, and who knows what else. Now, some housekeeping comments. The podcast now has an Instagram account. You can find it at Mage Hero Described. I post there fairly regularly, but given that Mage is limited in issue size compared to other long-running series out there, I have to pace myself on what I post to maintain a presence. Instagram really is its own thing, and in order to build a strong following, I'm tempted to stray from a strictly mage-focused image content approach, uh, sharing cool comics, related uh, posts by other users, and, and so on. There are certain things you can do to help people discover and follow an Instagram account. Uh, I'm open to feedback. Right now, I'm keeping the posted content only mage-related. Scenes or panels mentioned in the podcast, other artists' interpretation of mage characters, even mage cosplay. But I'd like to know what you think. Visit the Instagram account at MageHeroDescribed, take a look around, and let me know if I should stay mage-only, or if I should include other... Cool images of uh, who knows what, comics-related, Arthurian-related, mythical-related, into the account. Now, speaking of Instagram, I want to give a shout-out to Eli at Cosmic Lion Radio. Cosmic Lion on Instagram. He has an excellent interview with Matt Wagner on that podcast. It's from 2014, so nothing specifically about the current Hero Denied series in it, but you should go give it a listen right after you finish this episode. One more thing. I'm possibly going to be switching podcasting hosts in the near future. This could cause some disruption, but I'm hoping it will go smoothly. If for some reason the podcast disappears for a few days or you have trouble accessing it, that's what's going on. On to the issue. I'm going to say it right out, right off the bat. This issue Issue number five was just a joyous experience. This was a real pleasure to read. There's no fighting, but we get a lot of story and some truly awesome moments across all elements. Story, art, colors, letters, you name it. I I think this series just keeps getting stronger and stronger. Issue number four had a huge knockdown, dragout battle unlike we've ever seen in Mage so far, and played with storyline elements that go all the way back to Hero Discovered and, quite frankly, beyond that. And one of the great things about a series that has spanned decades, even with its extended decades-long hiatuses, is that readers of Hero Discovered and Hero Defined, even if you've only just read them recently for the first time, really get to draw on the history of this story, the full story. And the cast, the different heroes, witches, villains, mages, and so forth that Kevin Matchstick has encountered on his journey. And in this issue, we get not one, but two surprise appearances that are just gleeful. They're real, you know, fist-pumping moments of exaltation as we get to see old friends again and, and even experience a sad moment as well. So let's jump in. This issue opens with Kevin going down into a cavernous sewer. The light is a a dark green. It's reflected off these surfaces. It it almost looks like light reflecting off of green lichen. And Kevin's comments don't really make much sense. I mean, where is he? Who is he talking to? Is he talking to himself? And, And what he's talking about is really strange. He's asking, why the hell am I not wearing high tops? I mean... He hasn't worn high tops, his signature footwear, in Hero Discovered and Hero Defined at all in Hero Denied. And he comments on all the nasties that escaped from the sticks when it collapsed and their absolutely wonderful choice in dwelling. Uh, In fact, you get the feeling that he's possibly even down underneath the sticks itself. And he talks about how he 
how he has to step up for those who didn't make it, for Edsel and Sean. And though that is technically true, uh, he seems to be reaching way back for this reference. I mean, in the very least, we've also seen Garth the Hornblower die in battle against Redcaps in Hero Defined. Now, this could definitely be considered Kevin's responsibility because Garth was put on patrol by Kevin to frankly get him out of Kevin's hair. He thought the patrol would ultimately be something of an uneventful time waster, and unfortunately that wasn't the case. So the complete lack of reference here to anything that's happened so far in Hero Denied and possibly elements of Hero uh, Defined seems weird and just increases the sense of curiosity. Where is Kevin and just what the fuck is going on? What has happened since his kick-ass face-off with the ancient Mesopotamian goddess Erishkigal in issue number four and his subsequent belligerent meltdown at the ATM that followed that battle? Now, Kevin comments that he's not really sure what he's looking for, an alien something or other. And we finally hear from Kevin's unseen companion, complaining that after all this time, his Celtic is still terrible. And it's great that all of this takes place on page one and two of the issue. So the next page reveal comes as this awesome surprise when we see that Kevin is speaking to none other than Mirth. And these two pages are amazing. It is great to see the banter between our hero and his first advisor, his first mage. Mirth floating around with his signature green glow and bubbles, his swooping white hair, wearing a funky pair of the what he calls misty lens goggles that give him a bit of a steampunk look. And we even get uh, some uh, a Wagner silhouettes panel of Mirth in his classic cross-legged pose that's... Uh, was seen on one of the first Mage t-shirts and in the Hero Discovered PVC figure set. It's it's kind of a classic, iconic Mirth pose. Anyway, at this point, it is clear that we are looking at a flashback. This is a scene from the time between Hero Discovered and Hero Defined. Kevin and Mirth, The Lost Years. We, uh, we get a chance to see another lettering flourish by Dave Lanfear here as Mirth corrects Kevin's pronunciation that they are seeking a creature, and based on what little research I've done on Celtic pronunciation, it is known as the Elaine Trechend. It's like, like chutzpah. A three-headed monster from Irish mythology. The Elaine Trechend is mentioned in a text, um, the Battle of Mag uh, Mukrima, Battle of Mag Mukrima, and is said to have emerged from, and, and I know I'm going to mangle this, the cave of Kruachan or Kruachan. It the uh, the Elaine Trachend laid Ireland to waste until it was killed by the Ulith poet and hero Amergan. So I think I've just fulfilled my my Celtic pronunciation um, tongue twisters for I don't know maybe the next ten years. Uh, I've got a feeling, given the direction things are going in in Mage, there are more to come. In a total sidebar, by the way. So again, the Elaine Trechend was killed by uh, poet and hero Amergen. And readers of John Myers Myers' Silverlock will recognize that as one of the many famous names also held by the character Goliath from that book, Silverlock. Now, this is all putting us firmly back into Kevin's Arthurian roots, something that looks like it may be taking a stronger hold, um, you know, through this series, as we'll see later in this in this issue. And what we're seeing here is a critical moment for Kevin. Not only do we see how Mirth has been educating Kevin about different nasties, and this is one in one way almost helps explain how Kevin seems to know the names, habits, attacks, and so forth of so many creatures. But Mirth also makes the comment that this is the sort of challenge you'll have to face on your own after I must leave. And he also comments that others will come. That's a heck of a thing to drop as you're just getting ready to face down some 
three-headed, uh, you know, bird monster beast. It totally catches Kevin off off guard. But this particular, this bit of information has been referenced in both Hero Defined and Hero Denied. Wally Utt in Hero Defined was Kevin's second mage, and while constantly present, Wally was largely ignored by Kevin, who was, frankly, he was too full of himself to even see straight and entertain that Wally might at e at all even be his mage. And of course, now Kevin is repeatedly wondering, where is the third mage? I have my own ideas about who the third mage is for various reasons, but from a storyline and mythic perspective, I would tend to agree with an idea hinted at in a bulletin board post um, authored by a, a couple who identified themselves as Robin and Jeff in 1999. This was on the old Mage 2 fan site uh, that I was running when Mage 2 was a was a going concern. And that uh, that bulletin board post actually was published by Matt in the letter column of issue 13 of The Hero Defined. Unfortunately, I lost the old bulletin board data from that site years ago, and it's too bad because the fan community was really involved with all sorts of discussions about what was going on in The Hero Defined, questioning plot developments, uh, there was a whole kerfuffle about uh, about Hercules and his choice of partners and so forth. Uh, and so that's all the more reason why it's great that this particular post was published by Matt. If if one thing had to be saved out of there, I'm glad it was this particular really dense reading, uh, especially about the Arthurian nature, the, the resonance of Arthurian themes and activities in the Mage series. Uh, in fact, I think there are some elements of this letter that may be really relevant to a lot of what might be shaping up in, in Hero Denied. Uh, I'll see about posting it uh, in the as-mentioned-in uh, on the site for this episode. Uh, it um, we'll, we'll see how well that goes. Also, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Kevin Matthews, who I noticed has a letter in that issue as well. And um, I've noticed uh, some of his posts out there on Instagram, and I know that he's done some some writings regarding uh, Matt Wagner's uh, work as well. So, Kevin and Mirth find the Elaine Trachend, another great nasty to add to the growing cool monsters in this series. It's just, it's a great depiction. And we discover, then, that Kevin is telling his son Hugo a story about this particular adventure. Now, we get this funny back and forth that in a way I think details the tension that exists in Mage between the overarching story and the action in the story. Kind of a tension that happens in comic books in general. You've got fight, 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 soap opera, soap opera, soap opera, fight, 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 soap opera, soap opera, soap opera. I don't mean to be uh, reductive about it, but <laughs> especially growing up when I, when I was growing up before Mage came out, etc., I was, I was a big X-Men fan, and you don't get much more soap opera than that unless you go to old romance comics. So Hugo is still a huge Dragon Ball Z fan. Uh, it's evident in, uh, I think it's on his t-shirt or, or such, asks, uh, or I think it's the reference, he asks if his dad went all super cyan on the monster. Did he kick its butt? And Kevin is trying to get Hugo to see the big picture. That Mirth told him that he would encounter three mages, and so far, he's only met two. That is the story that he is telling about growth and accepting what... But he gets cut off by Hugo telling him, I just want to know about the monsters. And again, I think this is a really neat way to show the tension between the two sides of the story, and in some cases, what what different fan base members might want. You know, Mage is definitely a swords and sorcery tale told against a modern background. And it has the appropriate battles, keeping things exciting, raising the stakes, giving you some amazing eye candy. And at the same time, it's a story about growth. You lean in too far in one direction, you risk losing the attention of your audience who wants to see some cool fights and monsters, lean too far in the other direction, and you risk losing their counterparts on the other side. Hugo asks how his dad drew Excalibur that time. And that's interesting because this means that so far, Hugo's only understanding of Excalibur right now is that this is the power that Kevin can manifest however he wants to. And Kevin tells him about how Excalibur was originally contained in the shape of a bat. 
uh, a bat that he mentions, he calls it a legacy carried and passed on to him by a very dear friend. A very dear friend whom all their cars seem to bear as the name on their license plate. Uh, he doesn't mention that, but it sure seems to be the trend. Now, Hugo gets all enthused about the idea of a magic baseball bat, and if his dad kicked the Elaine Trahan's butt. And let's be real, for a lot of Mage fans, myself included, myself included, that bat really captured the imagination. It was very cool. The whole idea of Edsel as a modern lady of the lake and the bat she carried being Excalibur, uh, you know, it was a, it was a linchpin and, a, and an immediate visual signal uh, about the entire story. But Kevin wants to make sure Hugo isn't just caught up in the adventure of all this and gives him a warning that all of this is real. These creatures, magic, it's all real and it's very dangerous. But yes, he did indeed go on to kick its ass. Before we go on, it's worth noting that this scene opens with an exterior shot of their home. And this is a different home than where we last saw Kevin and his family. It's raining. There's a different car in the driveway. It does look like the license plate reads Edsel 8. So while we've got a sense that we're back in the present, the setting looks very unfamiliar. In Kevin's glory days, storytelling doesn't go unnoticed by Magda. She's worried that Kevin is sending the wrong message to Hugo with these adventure stories, and that Kevin should be teaching him how to identify and avoid encounters with the fairy realm and nasties. Magda is getting ready to head out. While Kevin is in his ubiquitous bolt shirt, Magda is dressed for business. It sounds like she's working in real estate, not only selling homes, but she's going to see two open houses as well. The home they're in is temporary, and Magda is on the hunt for a new home, a place that has to be just right. She says she'll know it when they see it, or she'll know it when she sees it. It'll be their Camelot. And she heads out the door with Miranda, revealing that the very cool-looking necklace that she wears is actually the completed protection filter that was still brewing in the magic crock in issues one through four. Now, it's unclear why they didn't simply use it at the house they were in at the time, but perhaps with the two run-ins with the nasties in the area, they felt it was simply safer to move to another location where Kevin and the family were totally off the radar. A nice touch here as Magda heads out the door. She says, Not knowing when the dawn will come, I open every door. This, in many ways, is evocative of Magda's quest for a new home to be their Camelot, something that the foundation of, with magical protection and all, could be considered a new dawn. And since she's going to open house after open house, trying to find the right home for the family, well, she is opening every door. This is actually from a short poem by Emily Dickinson. Uh, It's a short poem, the entirety of which is, Not knowing when the dawn will come, I open every door. Or has it feathers like a bird, or billows like a shore? Emily Dickinson is sometimes referred to as the mystic poet of New England, and her poems are often referred to as riddles. I've read that this particular piece is considered to be about Dickinson's inspiration and poetry, that uh, some saying she opened every door of herself to find inspiration and resisted the common literature world uh, like shore, like the shore against billows with roars and breakers. Um, in this situation, I'll stand by my take, by my interpretation in this particular uh, setting, and who knows? You know, on the autobiographical side, it may be that Barbara Wagner enjoys Emily Dickinson's poetry, and this is a way for Matt to work that into the story. I don't know. But I like how these two opening lines from the poem capture the spirit of her mission, and it, and it sounds like something a, a witch might say as she's about to go off on a journey, which, in fact, she is and she's doing. There are some nice home life touches in this scene. There's the purple cat, Chloe, because, of course, the cat is purple. And anyway, in a comic world of sleek, technology-laden superheroes, this is just a house. It's a typical colonial-style home, one of which Magda doesn't seem too fond of. Magda and Miranda head off, and Kevin takes Hugo to get his school bus in the rain. Uh, I love this frame of Kevin and Hugo under the umbrella as we get to see Kevin back in dad mode, 
checking in on Hugo and how he's doing with the move and reinforcing Magda's incredible strength, saying, it's really heroic what she's attempting, all she's doing. We're so used to looking at heroism in the battle, the clash against monsters, and Kevin is recognizing and making sure his son recognizes that heroism is more than that. Now, as I may have said in a past episode, this is the everyday amazing heroism of being a parent. Hugo gets on the bus with Kevin promising a dinner of chicken soup. Uh, So he's holding down the fort while Magda goes forth on behalf of the family in her work and a quest for the new home. Kevin at this point goes on to visit an ATM. Since Mage is what I like to call an organic comic, no narration boxes, no thought bubbles, those ended early on in the series around issue three. These visits give us a chance to get inside Kevin's head, to know what he's thinking. And right now, Kevin is striking a softer, an almost apologetic tone about his outburst after his encounter with Arish Kagao in issue number four. And Kevin says right now he's uncomfortable. He's feeling like a rabbit hiding in its cage. He used to feel confident, able to defend his family against anything. But this fight against the Queen of the Dead has clearly shaken him. He closes the conversation with an admission of shortcoming and a comment that whenever Mirth is ready to appear again, that he'll try to be ready again. This one-sided dialogue is a lot to go through. Back in issue one, Hugo had commented on his dad's lengthy visits talking to ATMs. During this ATM confessional, a couple walks up to use the ATM after Kevin. And you know how usually when people are waiting in line to use an ATM out in public, you know, they're they're not too, too close, but they're not too far away either. It's like that, I'm staying close enough to stake my place in line distance. This couple is like as far away as they can get from the crazy guy talking to the ATM. One more step, and they'd be in the street. Uh, it, their approach and them waiting and so forth, it gives this scene some humor against the serious tone of Kevin's monologue. And they keep their distance from the guy having a one-on-one with the cash machine, giving each other a look and a laugh as he notices them waiting, and slightly startled and apologetic, Kevin moves on. At this point, we switch over for the one visit uh, at the Umbra Sprite's headquarters, where, uh, where she is emerging from the Black Fountain, asking how long she has slumbered, uh, slumbered. Summonings in Hero Discovered drained the Umbra Sprite, and this last summoning, a long dormant goddess, must have been especially taxing, since we find out the Umbra Sprite has been recovering for 13 months. So that gives us uh, some frame of reference about, hey, why are we, you know, we, we know we're in a new place, but how long has it been? Now, look, I, I know that the Umbra Sprite is now the Umbra Mother. I'm going to shift back and forth between these terms sometimes, but I think I'm going to primarily use Umbra Sprite as my character reference name. This is mostly because, while the character's shape and manifestation has changed, this is still the Umbra Sprite, a vast darkness. Attila, Herod, Nero, Hitler, and Stalin realized as one, striving to destroy what is light and good in all of us, whose goal is to sacrifice the Fisher King and throw the world towards shadows and darkness as it had been during the reign of the Caesars, the Dark Ages, the World Wars, and so on. Same evil fuck, different costume. Now, I could go into all kinds of speculation about the masculine energy of Kevin coming into his heroic identity while the Umber Sprite was in the form of a man, and how now we have the Umber Sprite in the shape of a woman in a series where family and children are a focal point, and see where that general dialogue and discussion and interpretation goes. But not now. For now, just cut me some slack if I refer to it, it because that's neither of them are certainly its native forms, as the Umbra Sprite, sometimes, most of the times, <laughs> instead of Umbra Mother. The Gracklethorns report that they have no idea whether the Pendragon has been defeated, but Arish Kagal's realm, Erkala, 
remains empty. Uh, the Umbra mother reaches for her constant cigarette, uh, a habit the Umbra sprite has maintained since the hero discovered, and one which may have been its undoing as well in the first part of the trilogy. I mean, there's a, I think there's a, a whole story to go into with what the heck is going on with that plant and the Umbra sprite in Hero Discovered. You would think the Umbra sprite would have dropped this particular habit, but hey, sometimes you have to just stick with your brand and go with it. Now, in the Umbra sprite's absence, the Gracklethorns have opened their mission. They have a collection of candidates for her for it to examine, and they are certain that one of them must be the Fisher King. They actually have a few contenders ready and waiting. Upon hearing this, the Umbra Sprite triples the bounty on Kevin Matchstick's head. The Umbra Sprite's face, as the Umbra Mother, continues to be obscured by her long white hair. This is similar to how the Umbra Sprite's face was constantly hidden in shadow in Hero Discovered. And she makes this intriguing, somewhat disturbing comment about having to get thoroughly dried inside. I mean, what does that even mean? On emerging from the black liquid, does the Umbra Mother go from that black oil shade form that we saw at the end of Hero Defined and then take human form? Um, yeah, that's kind of what you know, that liquid looks like, that black oil shape. Or maybe it recovers from exertion, like the summoning, by reverting to that viscous form and it takes some time to fully cure into human shape. Um, I'm not really expecting any insight into this from the comic any more than there's an explanation about the money from the magic ATM card. Uh, Matt played around with that topic early on in Hero Defined when Joe Fat asks Kevin about the money. Does it have serial numbers? Where does it come from? And so on. I, I mean, heck, this is a story about a guy who used to wield a magic baseball bat who fights mythical creatures where magic is real. Don't sweat the details. But that line about having to thoroughly dry out on the inside just really adds to the creepy factor of the Umbra Sprite and the villains in general. We rejoin Kevin as he's headed into a bookstore to do some research. Picking up a volume of a book titled Fantastic Creatures of Legend and Myth. So he seems to be keeping up on his nasty research. As he enters the bookstore also, he's singing a song. They're the final lyrics of a song by the Pixies, You Mass. And we get two pitch-perfect panels bringing the second surprise appearance of the issue, Joe Fat. And man, what an entrance. Brennan Wagner's colors capturing Joe Fat's speedster blur while books go flying in the background, and then he's skidding to a stop next to a startled Kevin with a nonchalant, sup? I mean, just the way those few panels work Kevin in the bookstore, the familiar blur in the background, Joe appearing next to a startled Kevin. I mean, it just really let this movie in my mind play out, bringing that scene to life. And Brennan Wagner's colors here really shine. Compared to Hero Defined, Joe Fat has more tonal range and dimension. It really drew my attention to, um, to how the characters in Hero Denied look. Well, I mean, they look less comic-y than they did in Hero Defined. Don't get me wrong, I like Jeremy Cox's coloring in Hero Defined, but uh, but this is a new story, the art style has shifted a little, but the coloring approach is much richer. Jeremy Cox had mentioned in a past interview with Comic Book Resources that for Mage, he, um, and I quote, wanted it to be bright and open and to let the art breathe, that the art in Mage was excruciatingly brilliant in how simple it was. And all that would have informed his covering. Anyway, for me, a lot of the impact of Brennan Wagner's direction with colors really jumped out at me on the next page, where Kevin is greeting Joe Fat. Kev is looking at Joe, but Joe in many ways is really looking right out the page at the reader with a little hand wave. It's almost like he's saying hello to the reader as much as he is to Kevin. And in a way, especially for longtime readers, people who've been waiting 18 years since they've seen this guy's mug, uh, it's a, uh, at least for me, it was a welcome hello wave. Kevin goes in for the hug, but Joe dodges it. And Kevin notes that he was never the hugging type. Uh... According to Mike Allred, 
It seems that Matt Wagner is known for giving bear hugs. And at least for a time, he, Allred that is, would see Matt at book club get-togethers. So the hug, the bookstore setting as an analog for a book club. I'm not trying to read too much into this, but these are just some ways that we potentially see Matt Wagner's real life elements bleed over into Kevin Matchstick's life. Kevin offers to buy Joe Fat lunch, and free food is still one of Joe Fat's favorite things. I mean, Joe Fat is like a stomach on feet. Is it food? Is it free? And with that flash-like speed, uh, he can get to that all-you-can-eat buffet or the diner faster than anyone. Oh, and speaking of food, Mike Allred has also commented on enjoying Matt Wagner's astounding cooking at the aforementioned book club get-togethers. So again, possibly things loosely jumbling together on a few levels here. Uh, Not trying to overthink it, just noticing some overlaps. Before we leave the bookstore, it's worth noting what Kevin is researching. Uh, This book, Fantastic Creatures of Legend and Myth. We get a bit of the author's name. It looks like Joseph is the first name and the second name starts with M-O. Now, Matt has commented in the past, if I remember correctly, about Joseph Campbell's book, Hero with a Thousand Faces, and how that resonates with the themes in Mage. If I remember correctly, it wasn't something he was familiar with when he worked on Hero Discovered, so when he later read Campbell's book, detailing common heroic stories across cultures, it seemed to really speak to him. Now, not quoting here, just half-remembered comments from past interviews. Uh, Anyway, I checked with Dr. Internet, couldn't find an actual book titled Fantastic Creatures of Legend and Myth, but it does seem like just the kind of thing Kevin would be reading to make sure he was able to identify any nasties he might run into, especially since the stakes have been raised and his chances of running into nasties is, you know, really legitimate, given everything that's been going on since this series started. Where Kevin's job is fighting nasties, Matt's job is writing and drawing comics. I've read him mention in the past how he goes beyond comics for inspiration. As with any creator, inspiration and influence can come from anywhere. But I recall him mentioning in at least one interview, um, at least in one case, where story and writing techniques used by novelists have influenced him, or presented at least particular techniques that he has taken and played with in comic form. So, Kevin's professional reading here can kind of loosely overlap with Matt's own reading activity and their impact on uh, their their respective work, both with nasties or with creating comics, as well as, again, that book club angle. Again, these are loose relationships here, uh, nothing explicit, but there are definitely parallels to be drawn. Also, while Joe and Kev are talking in the bookstore, we see an aisle that they are next to is labeled Psychology M through W. MW are clearly Matt's initials, and since story-wise, there's really no need in the panel to identify a bookstore aisle topic, I can't help but think this is another loose reference, comment, or possibly even a subtle joke about what? (laughs) I have no idea. But it just, it seems like the kind of thing that would be planted as an Easter egg rather than just randomly. Joe Fat is based on the comic artist and writer Joe Matt. I'm not going to go in depth here about him. Uh, He's well known in his own right. Let's just say I think there's a lot going on here at various levels. Not all of them necessarily explicit, just hinted or played around with. As we shift to the diner, the Oasis Cafe, we get one of our first real-world indicators of the date. The movie High Fidelity is playing at the movie theater opposite the restaurant. This movie was in wide release during the spring of 2000. And Kevin says that it's been 10 years since he last saw Joe. Um, Time moves differently in the fairy realms. Joe... Kirby and Kevin went through the mystic portal that was opened up by Prester John at Mount Royal Cross in Montreal, and this was at the end of issue 11 of Hero Defined. Now, when they do that, it's winter, and there's a huge snowstorm over Montreal, but by the time Kevin emerges from the confrontation with Emil Grackleflint and then the just-returned Umbra Sprite, it's months later. 
Now, I didn't check issue 15 of Hero Defined, but let's say it's spring of the next year. So if this is 2000, let's say that Kevin last saw Joe in 1990. 1990 is the year Kamiko went into bankruptcy, an event that was at least in part illustrated in Mage as the baseball bat shattering. That would match around the time the Kamiko run for Grendel came to an end. Matt Wagner's series Grendel was published by Kamiko from 1986 to 1990. Issues 13 through 15 were written by Wagner, drawn by Bernie Moreau, and colored by uh, Joe Matt. Uh, and as well as I believe that Wagner and Moreau also colored some as well. Both artists worked with Matt either on other issues of Grendel, and Joe Matt was also notably the colorist of the Grendel-Batman crossover Devil's Mask. Amazing story. Great fun. So just some things that allow us to really set the story of, of Mage against our timeline. Uh, here in 2018, we are now getting a story that takes place you know, roughly, you know, 18 years in the past then at this point. Joe tells Kevin that he's gotten out of the nasty hunt. He's into collecting mystical objects. Early 20th century stuff, he says. He prefers things in mint condition. He picks up doubles of some things for trading. And basically, cross this over, and we're talking about comic collecting and the behavior of comic collectors, wanting things in mint conditions, getting doubles so that they've got one to sell or trade and one to keep. It would make sense that if heroes in the mage universe are analogs of comic creators and the people around them in the industry, for instance, Diana Schutz as the witch Isis, um, then mystical objects could easily equate to comics, comic artwork, etc. So it's just uh, another Easter eggy kind of comment. And hey, for um, I, I don't know how busy Joe Matt kept with his writing and his art. I know there was some TV series uh, discussion quite some time ago, but maybe he just leaned heavy into the collecting and, and selling part of the industry. Now, the last time we saw Joe Fat, his hair had turned white a side effect of the shock and severity of the attack by the succubus in Hero Defined. His hair is black again. Kevin asks what happened, and Joe tells him that he shaved his hair off at one point, and, hey, it grew back black again. But that's not the reason Joe came to see Kevin. Catching up is not the reason that he came to see Kevin. Kirby Hero, he tells Kevin. Kirby is dead. Kevin is clearly shocked and somewhat regretful, since they parted on bad terms and hadn't spoken in years. In a fashion true to the story of Hercules, the primary avatar informing Kirby's current incarnation, he was poisoned by his girlfriend with Hydra's blood, and that's what led to his death. Now, in Greek myths, Hercules's wife, one of his wives, is lied to by a centaur who has tried to steal her away from Hercules. And, as will happen, he dies at the hands of, well, Hercules. Hercules shoots the centaur with his arrows that he has dipped into the poisonous blood of the Hydra. Now, this centaur gives Herc's wife his blood-soaked tunic before he dies, because, I don't know, the Greeks, telling her that uh, giving it to, uh, to Herc will result in exciting the love of her husband. Because, of, of course, they just... Because blood-soaked tunic, why not? Now, several years later, Hercules's wife hears rumors that she has a rival for his love. And remembering the centaur's words, she takes out this blood-stained shirt, um, some Greek mythic Monica Lewinsky, uh, and she gives Hercules this blood-stained shirt. The problem is, is that it's still covered in the Hydra's blood from Hercules's arrows, and it poisons him, tearing his skin and exposing his bones, literally just like, it's, it's like eating his flesh off. Hercules, as this is going on, uproots several trees and he builds a funeral pyre, and as his body burns, only his immortal side is left, Zeus elevates him, and Hercules rises to Olympus as he dies. So Kirby's final end at the hands of a girlfriend meets with the myth, as does Kirby Hero's comments in issue 12 of Hero Defined, where he tells Kevin 
that the only thing that scares him is fire. That he even had dreams about dying in fire, which, when you consider that Herc built his own pyre, is true to his overarching story. Matt doesn't cut corners when dropping these hints and tying mythic references into his story across the three books. Nothing is necessarily too on point, much like Mirth telling Kevin when he reveals uh, his identity as the Pendragon. Remember, he says to Kevin that in his current incarnation, he's not exactly king and not exactly Arthur. So while elements, themes, events, people, and so on can echo in Mage, nothing is necessarily specifically exact to legend. This is true for the other heroic incarnations of Avatars, and it's convenient because it lets Matt take elements from all the various source material, but not make him beholden to recreating them word for word, element by element, turn for turn. Back to the current issue. Joe confirms that Kirby, like Hercules, completed his twelve labors. But Joe says that what ultimately got him was living too large, drinking too deep at the well. Kirby Hero, if nothing else, was definitely larger than life. Let's clear something up. Joe Fat and Kirby Hero are definitely inspired by Joe Matt and Bernie Moreau. Diana Schutz commented once that the two characters, quote, are characters of their originals. But Bernie Moreau, last I checked, is still alive. Now, in fact, Wagner has commented that a lot of the characters in Mage are amalgams of many people. In fact, although, and again, this is a quote from some past uh, past interviews and discussions, although Kirby Hero specifically started out in Mage 2 as Moreau, he, quote, ended up more like a person with whom I've had a much closer and even more complex relationship than the Big B. Now, I'm not sure that there are specific real-life analogs in the hero discovered in the same manner as in Defined and Denied. But there is the notable reference uh, in Hero Discovered when Kevin is talking about calling into work and talking to Cooch, which I believe is short for Cuchinata, as in Bill Cuchinata, one of the founders of Kamiko, the publisher of Mage, the hero discovered in Grendel. So with that slim, real-world nod in mind... I've always been struck by the similar uh, eyewear chosen by Sean Knight and Kirby Hero. And I've wondered if taken together, there may be a reference to this other person. Who knows? Maybe the, maybe this other person wore similar eyewear to Bernie Moreau and Kirby Hero. The issue closes with Joe saying that he thinks guys like Kevin and Kirby can't avoid the big fight that one way or another, it's going to find them. Kevin replies that he's only at risk if he draws Excalibur, and he doesn't do that anymore. So no worries about any nasties in the area. But Joe, who can literally sniff out nasties, tells him otherwise, that there's a big, stinky one not too far away. Kevin says it can't hurt to just go look, and they find a questing beast. The questing beast is a nasty, straight out of Arthurian legend. And this artwork, uh, this depiction of the questing beast is really cool. And doing a little bit of research, it uh, Matt's take on the questing beast is a really cool modern uh, update. It still keeps some of the you know the general look of some of the reported appearances of the questing beast, but really updates it nicely. It looks tray cool. Um, Last issue's encounter, you know, with the rival from Kevin's incarnation is Gilgamesh notwithstanding. Again, we are leaning hard into the Pendragon identity here. So Questing Beast, a lot to unpack here. Did some digging around, but this following bit is courtesy of something called the Camelot Project, whose URL is way too long to repeat here, so just Google it, Camelot Project. Uh, I also got some background uh, information from Under the Influence, another long, complicated URL. I will provide links to both in the um, in the podcast. So, according to the Camelot Project, the questing beast has also been called the Bizarre Beast or the Beast Glatisant. Or beast Glatisant. It appears in some French 13th century texts, and in English it appears in... Uh, Mallory's 15th century Mort d'Arthur. The creature's name 
comes not entirely from its function, which is to be the object of quests, but also from the monstrous barking noise it makes. And I believe that Joe and Kevin talk about it uh, sounding like there's a pack of dogs. In French and Middle English, uh, gladizant means barking or bang, while in Middle English, the verb question means to bark as well as to hunt. So there's a double meaning here of the English word that makes the questing beast's name itself a pun. It is the barking beast for which knights hunt. There's something underneath that that just seems really Monty Python-esque, and I'm just too tired to go for it. The questing beast appears differently in various versions of Arthurian stories. Typically, it's a, a brief appearance that lays the ground for or foreshadows something of profound or an important nature. In Arthurian legends, the questing beast appears as a, a powerful creature sought after by King Pelinor. The beast itself is considered an omen for violence, incest, and chaos. And it appears twice to Arthur. First, after he has unwittingly slept with his half-sister, which resulted in the con uh, conception of Mordred. Uh, they did not know they were related to each other at the time. The second appearance is after he has a dream foreseeing the destruction of his kingdom by Mordred. Um, Arthur's most cited encounter with it typically involves it being pursued by Pelinor. Pelinor is convinced that it, is, that it is his family's doom to pursue this beast. The beast could only be killed by a few chosen individuals whose qualifications for the task are not revealed. But those who join the pursuit become totally obsessed to the point of derangement with it. So, who knows how this will translate into the story of Mage, but I think Kevin's about to be inspired to pursue some kind of possibly damn fool obsessive quest. So, buckle in, friends. Um, let's talk about reviews. In a Facebook Live session, I uh, briefly discussed three reviews of issue number four. Pop Cult HQ provided a spoiler-free, well-rounded review covering the story, action, art, coloring, lettering, and so forth in the issue. Uh, a great, well-rounded review, really, which makes it all the more curious when the reviewer refers to Kevin Matchstick as, quote, everyone's favorite streetwise mage. And, and I... I don't want to be <laughs> look I'm well I'm well aware of um of the degree of fan you have to be to be doing a podcast like this but I also don't want to be that you know that level of fan who's a scold but Kevin's not the mage his key magical advisors are the titular mages Mirth and the Hero Discovered, Waliat and the Hero Defined, and well, who knows who it will be in this one but it just struck me as slightly odd that in a review where they really got into the material, there would be such um, such an off-kilter understanding of who the characters were and what the title refers to. Michael Penskis over at Blackgate, a true mage fan, uh, in, in his review of issue number four, seems frustrated by the pace of the story, and that the tone of the story, in his, um, in his estimation, hadn't changed since the original series. He also says, and I'll quote here, Honestly, after five issues in, I'm counting issue zero, I get why some people might start pulling out of this series. Comics are expensive, and we're in almost $20 deep here, and we really haven't gotten that much of a story yet. Yeah, Matt Wagner's art is always crisp and vibrant no matter what he's drawing. It feels weird that we've got an antagonist who's still making the same mistakes after all these years, partially invalidating the value of his supposed lessons in previous books. And I don't know. I feel like we've had plenty of story. Just different story. It's not all nasty bashing. You know, by the end of issue four of Hero Discovered, Kevin had essentially met Mirth and Edsel, fought one big nasty, the Marhalt Ogre, and had some run-ins with Grackleflints. Yeah, we got an idea of what the Umbra Sprite and the Grackleflints were up to on their side of the chessboard. There was a lot of mirth in the Umbra Sprite, both explaining the ground rules of this universe and their exposition, the struggle between good and evil, the hunt for the Fisher King, and hinting at the then still unknown role of Kevin Matchstick. Um, for Hero Denied, a lot of this was already in place. Kevin and the Umbra Sprite have respectively provided the same type of 
backstory, universe-establishing exposition that Mirth and the Umber Sprite provided in Hero Discovered. The one-on-one fight with Arish Kagal certainly is at least a totally different level of battle than Kevin's battle with the Marhalt Ogre in issue 4 of Hero Discovered, as well as the disastrous battle between Kevin, Kirby, and Joe against the Sprig and Flints in issue 4 of Hero Defined. So maybe it's that instead of getting the forward motion of meeting new companions, as Kevin did in both Discovered and Denied, we enter into this series with a built-in unit, his family, and the dynamic of his situation, waiting, laying low, the frustration of trying to protect his family, and quite frankly, not being able to go out in battle, with the one exception of when he goes lone wolf and ultimately faces Arishkagal, you know, going out to draw the danger after him. This is totally different than what is found in the first two books of the trilogy, but completely appropriate for where the character is uh, and the situation of of being a hero with kids. Uh, the other thing that that struck me interestingly, and frankly struck me as a difference between a, a conceit of what happens in literature and just books, comics, movies, etc., and real life, uh, is is when Michael says that it feels weird we, we've got an antagonist who's still making the same mistakes after all these years. I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> um, I've, I've spent enough decades, and, you know, I only hope at this point that I'm not still making <laughs> the same mistakes after all these years. But I've tended to notice that with myself and plenty of people, you know, a big part of life is that we spend a lot of time making the same mistakes in different ways. You know, our our big meta mistakes. Uh, you know, sometimes it's dating the same person with a different name, different face, and so forth. Other times it's all sorts of bad decisions. Some of it might be temper and emotional related. Um, you know, people in, in the real world, we make the same mistakes years after year after year. And I don't see that as invalidating the value of the lessons Kevin has had in the previous uh, books. I see it as being, frankly, he's all too human. Um, you know, the challenge they say uh, <laughs> post-enlightenment is that is that almost immediately after one is enlightened, it starts to fade. And, you know, you're just trying to cling on to what little lessons you learn in life and uh, and guide yourself by them. Again, I think it's something that, that can happen better in, you know, when you're reading a comic or you're reading a book, it's like, oh, they learned this. They should be acting accordingly to it. You know, same thing in TV. Hey, why are they doing that? That doesn't make sense. Um, but in real life, yeah, we make the same mistakes over and over and over again. Fuck yeah. Um, my apologies if I'm belaboring the obvious, belaboring the point here. Anyways, uh, I'm sure that Michael speaks for a segment of the mage audience and comic audience, you know, at, at large. I think ultimately, I hope ultimately this series will bring them around as the full story unfolds. Speaking of that perspective, Chris Beveridge's review of issue four of Mage, The Hero Denied, uh, at the Fandom Post is the first place I've seen someone articulate why the storytelling tone of this book is so similar to the previous Mage books, which is something that uh, some people here and there I've seen mentioned in some reviews. Uh, most notably, there was the Onion AV review where people were where the reviewer was saying that Mage was was stuck in the eighties. Uh, Beveridge's uh, review—it's a good review, mild spoilers—and here I quote: "Mage, the hero denied, continues to feel like an evolution of the books that we had before, as opposed to a book being created in the here and now." And this is difficult for some, I'm sure, because they're looking at it through the modern lens of storytelling, whereas these characters are coming from a different time and place and acting in ways that may make readers grind their teeth, to say the least. But Team Wagner is putting together something that, when read in full with the past works, gives us a Kevin Matchstick that will feel consistent while growing. And... I couldn't say it better, and I didn't say it. And I'm really glad that Chris Beveridge uh, articulated this in this way. I think he just captures it. And, you know, at the end of the road, this is a three-book work that will 
all be together, you know, collected into, into multiple volumes. Can't wait to be able to sit down and just read it from beginning to end over uh, <laughs> over a little bit of time. And I, I think, man, Chris, thank you. That just says everything. The comment again about Michael Pencus's uh, review. He's been reviewing multiple issues of Mage the Hero Denied. I don't necessarily agree with him on where he's going, but I, I respect his opinion, and uh, and we'll see how things move forward. Uh, all three of these, uh, by the way, all three of these reviews are linked to uh, through the Hero Described podcast website at magetheherodescribed.com. So let's look at um, some of the reviews of issue five. Alan Stewart at Comic-Con.com uh, comments in his review with the fair point that, you know, the issue is, quote, quiet, even elegaic chapter of the story, which largely foregoes, in, uh, foregoes action in favor of taking a look back to the past and, to a somewhat lesser extent, setting things up for the future. As such, it will probably be better appreciated by those fans who have followed the series to date than by a prospective new reader, but that's no reflection on the talents of either the elder Wagner, whose writing and drawing have never been better, or the younger, whose deft and sympathetic coloring beautifully enhances his father's work. No, it's not a great jumping-on point, but that just means that if you haven't started reading Mage yet, it's way past time for you to catch up. Now, I dig Alan's take on the overall tone of this issue and his closing sentiment, which I couldn't agree with more. Matthew Peterson at Majorspoilers.com raises an interesting point about the return of Joe Fat and his news regarding Kirby Hero, saying, This issue is unnerving to me, not just as a middle-aged man who keeps finding that old friends have suddenly passed away without me even knowing it, but because a little part of me thinks that this isn't Joe Fat at all. And that's a wild idea that this isn't Joe Fat. I'm gonna pass on that idea. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna sell, not buy. But it's an interesting thought. You know, could enemies be trying to influence Kevin in a more subtle way than we expect? If it's not Joe Fat, who is it? You know, there is a precedent for it. We've had Grackle Flint's impersonate. Uh, you know, we've had a Grackle Flint impersonate Sean. We've had uh, Succubus impersonate Edsel. And we've had, uh, yeah, there's a lot of succubuses impersonating different people. We have that also happen with uh, with Ishtar uh, and Joe Fat in uh, Hero Defined. So there's certainly a precedent for it. It'll be interesting. I don't think that's the case, but it would be interesting. At the Fandom Post, Chris Beveridge again fairly points out about this issue, and I quote, It's a nice bit that touches on the past with Mirth for a few pages and Joe for a few as well but it's also one that can be seen as a bit underwhelming unless you view it in context of not just this series in particular as a transitional piece, but within the work as a whole going back to the beginning. Definitely enjoyable for a range of reasons, including nostalgia, and it has me excited to see what comes next. Last of all, Ryan McClellan's review at Two Guys, One Review, and I'm not even going to consider the uh, possible inspiration for the site name. Anyways, this review nicely captures some of the parental dynamic in this issue, at least between Kevin and Hugo, and I quote, As his son and daughter were kept in the dark about their parents' past, it is so cool for Hugo to hear about his father fighting these nasty creatures. Kevin tries to impress upon Hugo that not only are these creatures real, but the danger is very real as well. It looks like Ryan is planning to review each issue. There's a good review. Go, uh, go check him out. Again, it doesn't look like Michael Penkus at Blackgate has posted a review of issue number five yet. Not sure if he's reviewing every issue. Um, maybe this one was just the final straw, too slow, not enough forward momentum. I don't know. I hope he keeps with it. I hope he keeps reviewing them. I'm going to keep checking his site because I really like to see what he has to say. All in all, it seems that most of the reviewers agree, at least the reviews I was able to find, this is an issue that especially rewards longtime mage readers. Newer issues, go get those back issues or those reprints and collections that uh, keep coming out. And now it's time to look at the issue's letter column. Uh, in a past episode, I had mentioned that I'm going to try to look at the letter column in these uh, episodes just because they are the they are this amazing place in time dialogue that disappear typically in reprints. Keep in mind that these would be in response to issue number three. 
The first letter is from Stuart Nager. He hypothesizes that Miranda is this arc's mage, referring to her pattern building in issue number three for her dad. If she's not Merlin, he says, then the magic is strong with her. He also says that he hopes we get to see a return of some past cast members, so this issue's return of Joe Fat and the flashback to Mirth must have been most welcome. In his response, Matt refused to comment on Stuart's guess about Miranda being this series' mage, but he did confirm that we are going to see characters from previous storylines pop up in The Hero Denied, so it looks like Joe is not just a one-off cameo appearance. George Trevaios writes in, uh, As a mage fan and a proud father of three daughters studying to take the SATs, uh, saying that he enjoyed being able to stump his daughters with the word abattoir at dinner. For the record, an abattoir is a slaughterhouse. Blaze Bear shares another longtime fan personal story of how they first discovered the Mage series, and commenting that it really hit home for him that the first three issues were built up to Kevin having to walk away from his family in order to protect him, reminding us that fallout from our past is often inevitable. And that's that's a great point. But I think it's also equally important that, that we've seen Kevin go out on his own, trying to resolve this by himself in one way, shape, or form, And that didn't seem to work. You know, trying to be the de facto king didn't work for Kevin and Hero Defined. So far, going out all lone wolf style didn't work so far in Hero Denied. So, hey, maybe maybe Kevin needs to look at this whole thing from a different perspective. You know, it might be his story, but it's not only his story. Maybe he needs to stop trying to shoulder all of this by himself. I mean, yes, Arthur was king, but he did have a roundtable. Kevin's roundtable already fell apart, but maybe there's another way ahead that isn't so aggressively focused on Kevin's way of handling it, and only that way. I'm, you know, I'm not sure. It's, uh, it it is his story. You know, ultimately, you know, I think there's an element of this that is Kevin Matchstick versus the Umbra Sprite. They never got to face off in Hero Discovered, uh, or at least they never really got to resolve in Hero Discovered. I, I, I'm not sure that going lone wolf is really going to be the the successful way ahead uh, for Kevin Matchstick. Andy Biscontini writes in that he appreciates that Kevin Matchstick is opting for shoes with proper arch support as the signature high tops are gone. And uh, <laughs> and I feel that as, as one of no doubt many Mage fans who uh, bought plenty of pair of Converse high top sneakers. Uh, that is a particular type of footwear that I look with I look at with fondness and will probably never purchase again. And then Matt shares a lengthy letter from his cousin's son who says that when he was little everyone told him that cousin Matt was a talented but weird guy, someone who he considered to be the coolest. Now, this letter is a re- is really fun to read. It provides a different view of Matt and his family from the perspective of, you know, well, family. And Matt finally closes the letter column with a great picture of his son and hero-denied colorist, Brendan Wagner, with his companion, Celeste, cosplaying none other than Kevin Matchstick and Mirth, leg wrappings and all, at uh, this year's, or maybe it was last year's, New York Comic Con. It's a great pick. I'll try to include it in the As Mentioned in podcast for this podcast episode. Also, you'll be able to see it uh, and other images at the podcast's Instagram account at Mage Hero Described. Might take a little while. Getting galleries up is one of the, well, is another time-consuming aspect of putting this podcast together. So if uh, there's a little bit of delay on that, I apologize. And that brings us now to the cover of issue number six. Under the ominous promise of a house divided, we see Kevin and Magda looking like they're having a bit of a standoff. Magda is looking less than pleased, and Kevin's kind of shrugging back at her. You know, that questing beast. I can't help but think that Kevin's got something adventurous in mind, uh, some new obsession, as would fit with that beast and the Im- the impact it has, that doesn't quite fit in with Magda's game plan, which is lay low, let's get safe, let's use this filter, you know, calm down and just play it safe. Um, <laughs> I don't think Kevin's going to play it safe. We might see some fireworks fly in issue number six, and I don't mean the kind of fireworks that we saw going off in the attic during issue number two. All right, 
That's this week's episode of Mage, the Hero Described podcast. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to join me next time when I will either review issue number six, or who knows, I might have a special one-off discussing a theme or some type of mage-related topic in the meantime before issue six comes out. Again, if you have any comments or thoughts that you'd like to share, please visit magetheherodescribed.com, where you can find instructions about the many ways you can get in touch. You can also find past podcasts, links to reviews of mage comics, images and scenes mentioned in the podcast, and more. You can even subscribe for updates and notices when a new podcast gallery or other content is published. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it through the usual social networks, and especially rate and review it on iTunes. It really helps other listeners discover the show. Thanks, and until next time, stay excellent.